Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to keep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the movie show with Joel and Ryan. I am Joel. And I'm Ryan. And we're happy to have you here today. Um, yeah, we got kind of, a, this is a special, this is a special day. Um, for a couple reasons, frankly. Uh, I Before we get going on things too in-depthly, uh, let's give it up. Let's wish a belated happy birthday to our... Uh, to to one half of this awesome team, uh, Ryan. Happy belated birthday! Officially on the movie show with Joel and Ryan podcast. Yeah, you did it officially on the movie show with Joel and Ryan Facebook page. I never do any birthday shit for you. When is That's it? Like okay. J- June or something? Late May, mm-hmm. early June? Nope, it's June. It's June. it's okay. Um, and frankly, I think you did. You did uh wish me a happy birthday on the Facebook page. Did I? Um, yeah. Oh, well, yep. then I'm awesome. What am I talking about? You are happy birthday to me. <laughs> happy birthday to you. Um, and speaking big, big, of birthdays, big ugly half century birthday. Yep. Well, so yeah, you just you just turned 50. Do you remember what it was like turning 40? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember turning 40 and I, I enjoyed turning 40. Actually, I was, I was, uh, I liked 40. That was not filled um, with the intense sense of existential dread that 50 was filled with at all. Cool. I look forward 40 to 40 was, that. you know, it was a milestone, but it was like, geez, I better get a job now. You know, it was kind of more the thinking at that time. Now it's like, I don't know. It's scary. <laughs> I mean, I know that yep. like, super old people out there would be like ah 50 is so great you're gonna be so happy but it just right. it doesn't feel great <laughs> i don't know <laughs> it doesn't feel good what can i say well there you go just being there honest you go. um but well, i appreciate 40. the uh, the outpouring that it was really really nice and you're you're i really thought that um i thought you'd get a picture of both of us in the um and the celebration at the end of escape to victory. Cause I really I, thought I, the guy running right in front of me was you for a second. until <laughs> I look closer and I'm like, no, it's just, he just did. He just got one with me. I just put you in there. Yeah. yeah you should have put um, both of us in there. I think that's, I mean, I don't mean to criticize. That was a really might, nice gesture, but well, you know, maybe I'll just make uh, a poster of that and I'll put, you know, I'll put me in there and that'll just be something you and I can each just have on in our office walls. Um, and someday when we, uh, when, you know, when this just 
absolutely blows up and we have our own offices and our own <laughs> you know company it's uh, nice you can... picked a nice one i i share that guy's physique to some degree he has my movie physique you know i believe if, that if was my movie i'd look like a big tomato running after those guys but... <laughs> i believe that was michael kane that i put your head on oh really well that <laughs> I mean, explains I think it so. Yeah, he was, um, he was about 50 at the time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He was. Nice. Um, so uh, <clears throat> speaking of birthdays, turning 40 this year is one of the uh, arguably the greatest sci fi film ever. Certainly one of our favorites. Um, and it's uh, it is Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. And we are going to get into it we are going to deep dive this thing um ryan and i actually were physically in the same space watching a movie for the first time in at least a few years uh, since the uh pandini started um so uh we yeah we watched it the other night um and uh so it should be fresh in our minds i hope it is very fresh and um yeah I, anything you want to say about blade runner before we get into it and hit the deep dive nah rock. all right it's rockets who knows how long this show will take i really really love blade runner yep this is uh yeah this is gonna be a good one so here we go everybody it is time for a deep dive on ridley scott's blade runner Speaking of cyberpunk stories, yeah. that's what that is from. Ghost in the Shell, um, the movie, yep. not Ghost in the then, Shell, the anime, which you all love. Ghost in the Shell, the movie, which everyone hated. Um, yep. Nevertheless, kind of nice. Nevertheless, it provided us. If that movie, the lasting legacy, I think, of that movie is that sounder for the, the show with Joel and Ryan. <laughs> I... You know, I wanted to find somebody saying something about having a deep dive, and there it was right on the internet for me to steal. That is kismet sometimes. Feels pretty good. Mm-hmm. Plus, it's nice. Uh, it's nice to have, uh, what's her face, Scarlett Johansson, like a permanent part of the show. It's cool. That's true. Um, and it's, I know that's one of the things that she was, uh, that she, that's on her bucket list. Or that we're not sending her residual she... checks or anything, but no, 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 no. But uh, maybe I should Photoshop her into that um, scene from Escape to Victory. Just her head well. floating down Just the her... Mariana's trench. <laughs> um, I'm feeling uh, all right. Maybe maybe I'm not in the right mood for the super super serious Blade Runner. Um, <laughs> but because we were talking Runner. about it after it's the so movie, cool. like why did people not like this? Because we were both kind of. We watched it very reverently, and we sat here in the it dark. Really, and... yeah. I mean, I will say uh, that is the least you and I have talked while a movie is <laughs> is going on. And I was afraid, but like at one point, like two thirds of the way through the movie, I just had I could, because it was again one of those scenes as they're uh, flying into uh, Terrell headquarters, 
uh and i'm and i just had i'm like this movie looks so good (laughs) (laughs) this this 4k transfer is unbelievable um it's 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 a it's a we'll get into the deets but it's an absolute marvel of visuals and sound and i mean that's that's what draws yeah. you in when you're seeing it for the first time, I think. And and we were like, well, why didn't people like people should have been in awe of this? I mean, nothing like this had ever been accomplished on film before. Truly, yeah. there had been some visual amazing films. You know, Ridley's previous film Alien is a stunning visual achievement in filmmaking, in commercial filmmaking, anyway. And and this is just more of the same on an even broader and bigger scale, but. That's the first thing you notice when you get to it. But a little history on Blade Runner based on Philip K. Dix to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, uh, which is a kind of novella. Most of his novels aren't, they're not novels like you think of sci-fi novels. They're kind of little, they're pamphlets by comparison. But Hmm. um, do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep? That's such a great name. The the name of the book that that Total Recall is based on is "We'll Remember It for You Wholesale." Yeah, <laughs> I mean these titles are spectacular, but they're not particularly cinematic. So everything starts with the title. Blade Runner is the title of a different thing altogether that they had to get the rights to just to call it that. It's an Alan Norris book based on people smuggling medical supplies. And that story was sort of stuck in a Blade Runner wannabe from the late 90s called uh, Imposter. Um, That's not really an adaptation of, of the Alan Norris story so much as it has the elements of that story woven into it. It's more of a... That's more of a Philip K. Dick story, too. But some of the movies that Philip inspired, and I think this was the first one that they made, that they tried to make. Um, and it was essentially a spec script by Hampton Fancher, who for years, people in the in because in, he's such an industry outsider, that people thought that was like a non de plume of somebody or a, or the name of somebody, you know, where they just combined a ton of writers' names into one. But Hampton was a real guy, you know. Now, it, later when we get documentaries and all, interviews and all this stuff, you, you get to experience him in a great way. And we'll talk about that, I guess, at the end, all the cool resources that you have to experience the sort of behind the scenes of Blade Runner that aren't the movie show with Joel and Ryan. We suggest you hang in and watch this first because this will this will be the best way. This is going to be the best one. With yeah. respect to everybody else. We're the best mm-hmm. way to find out about Blade Runner. Um, he wrote this story about this, you know, sort of bleak future um, where everyone had left Earth and there were just only a few people kind of left behind. And and the idea, the idea was that there was this special police force who hunted down these robots and killed them. And it even starts with this really interesting scene on like a farm where uh, there's this, there's a replicant is what they call the robots, like making it porridge or something on a stove. And it's, it's, it's weird because the film actually had that scene in the script for ages, but it decided no, you know, introduce it. 
introduce this urban world. That's what Ridley brought to it is this, this Mobius sort of urban noir thing that isn't exactly part of the, part of the novel. The novel, our hero mm-hmm. is obsessed with earning enough money by killing robots so that he can buy a sheep, like a real sheep, not a robot sheep, which is a thing that it takes a lot of. It's like buying your first mansion. You just have to save up a lot of money because animals are so rare. Blade Runner mm-hmm. touches on this in little ways that are fun, but it doesn't get into like the obsession with animals quite the same way. Um, so I'm rambling a little bit about Philip K. Dick's story, but I guess the point is that Philip... It didn't write this, what the movie ended up being. His, his All his ideas are explored thoroughly in them, and Philip's ideas are are great, but none of his movies, save one, R- Richard Linkletter's A Scanner Darkly is really loyal version of what the Philip K. Dick story is. But Total Recall, Paycheck, Minority Report... Um, there's a whole bunch more. None of those, they all take his premise and turn them into sort of Hollywood action blockbusters. Mm -hmm. And it's great because they're the smartest Hollywood blockbusters that we have actually are the ones that have this deeper philosophical meaning within them. And that's cool for all of those films. I can't, I'm not, there's a bunch more too that I'm not thinking of, but. Philip K. Dick screen adaptations, but it started with Blade Runner. He he only lived to see, sadly, a rough cut of Blade Runner. But he got to see some of the effects, and he got to see, um, kind of how the the bleak world of the future was brought to life, and he was thoroughly in awe of it, and really excited about the project. He was a writer. Although I don't, he didn't really live again to see how his other works were turned into movies, but he was a writer that understood that the movie's not the thing and that, that the idea is really what his writing is about anyway. The examination of self, the question of who are we, you know, that's the biggest question there is in mm-hmm. movies. And they all examine that from different angles using different high concept sort of sci-fi ideas, but they're all very personal, like first person stories and, and Blade Runner, you know, takes that and it has elements of that and it never really lets go of that throughout, but it, it just expands that into this huge thing, but not exactly an action movie. Is it Joel? It's it's a, no, no, it is a very, it's, it's got very violence methodical. And, it's yeah, but it's a detective story. It's very much yeah. a, uh, we call it neo noir, the great making of book. It's one of the best books ever written about the making of a movie called is called Future Noir, and that that this has been dubbed that in that style. There have been several yeah. things, none of which are even vaguely as good that have come out. Yeah, I mean, you can see like. We'll talk about some of the different versions that there have been of Blade Runner, um, but, but like you can, there was a version that has a voiceover. Uh, you can see why it would have the voiceover because it is very much like those old detective things that are you know old detective noir movies uh where you know the the you know you're getting the voiceover of yep. you know, the old gumshoe explains it all yep. to you, and you get to have a little bit of the first person voice. Uh, by having mm-hmm. that 
And you know, yep. so yeah, we'll talk about we'll talk about the infamous voiceovers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, real quick, other um, let's uh, just Philip K. Dick, Blade Runner, Total Recall, The Man in the High Castle, mm-hmm. Adjustment Bureau, Screamers, um, yeah. uh, Radio Free Albumuth. I don't know that one. <laughs> Me neither. Um, <laughs> next, based on the Golden Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Scanner Darkly, Paycheck, Minority Report, Crystal Crypt. Barjo, um, Crystal yeah, Crystal Crypt based on a short story of the same name. Oh, this was a short film based on the short story of the same name. Um, yep, uh, yeah, so th- those you know, and obviously, like the other Blade Runner sequels and uh, or the Blade Runner sequel and other sequels, and there's uh, there's been a few versions of Minority Report, uh, like the TV series, there's been a few versions of uh, Total Recall, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. Yeah, so those are the other those are other Philip K. Dick, Philip Kindred Dick uh, adaptations. Yeah, but if you know those, then you sort of get it. They they all have a wild premise, and they all they all take that premise and turn it back on the protagonist in a way where they have to spend the whole film in a figuring out confronting directly because of the high concept who they mm-hmm. who they are um sometimes they start out they don't know who they are when this movie ends we're not sure who they are there's a lot of there's a lot of that that's really really interesting and yep. this one so goes is a, you know total recall is a great example because that guy literally doesn't know who he is and has to figure it out before you get to the end mm-hmm. and that's that's great stuff, you know. Um, this is a little trickier than that because we think we've seen this guy before because of the noirish detective trappings, because of the voiceover that was in the original theatrical version. This guy's a very um, what's who's the Maltese Falcon character uh, that Humphrey Bogart uh, plays? Yeah, that's um, very uh, famous. I want to say you that's know, Rick as well. Um, uh, Rick is Casablanca, but oh, okay, that's right. Uh, Marlowe, um, Philip Marlowe. Malty, it's Falcon. Sam Spade. Oh, Sam Spade is Maltese Falcon. So who's Marlowe? He's one of the other ones. Cool. Anyway, yeah. same diff. Basically, the hardened, you know, noir, uh, where the woman walks into his office at the beginning, and and you, the author describes her legs in detail. This is the sort yeah. of story we're talking about. This is a little different. Uh, maybe we should start back at the beginning with the Lad Company. My favorite movie logo. The only moment Joel ruined when our screening of Blade Runner was just making fun of the Lad Company logo. Not cool, but I I kept it. I kept it. I kept it inside. I knew I would get to vent here. On well, the show. okay. So to me, to be to be fair, uh, I thought it, I you know of course once again I thought I was hilarious um, because we're watching this uh, we're watching this gorgeous 4K you know transfer. I mean the the thing looks stunning, and the first thing we see is that little essentially like uh, uh, like old school printer you know mm. bitmap readout you know of, of and then it becomes the lad company thing, and I just said. Man, these effects are horrible. <laughs> they're, but they're not. They're awesome. No, they're not. John they're Williams' amazing. Lad Company theme is awesome. You kind of—it's weird that this is the only 
it's a tree is the logo and this is the only black logo usually it's white and it looks really terrible in white like it looks like Joel was claiming this looked but this animation is amazing I think and the uh, the music's really classy and Alan Ladd Jr is just a super cool guy in the history of movies so I'm very reverent about it and you don't get to see it very often it's here it's at the beginning of Outland um it's at the beginning of all the Police Academy movies. That's where people are most used to seeing it. Yep. Um, Lad Company, when Alan Ladd was fired from Fox for championing Star Wars and Alien and movies that were big hits, he, he was fired basically because he, they, he gave too much controlling interest of those projects away to its creators. Um, he was a very, very beloved creative movie executive um he did that with in the case of star wars just to keep the thing afloat you know and because nobody thought that little plastic versions of the characters from the movie were going to still be selling you know 45 years later like yeah. hotcakes so giving the rights back to merchandising was a thing that was like whatever sure yeah but he was a champion of those things and a really, really interesting guy. We've talked about him in the Star Wars episodes. We talked a lot about him and how he helped set up Alien with Ridley Scott. And when he was fired, he started his own shingle. It's not really a, its own studio per se. It was a, it was a, like a, a production house housed within Warner Brothers at the time and sometimes... Mm -hmm affiliated with Orion Pictures as well. They were all kind of inbred and together back in 82. Um, and made some pretty good movies. And that that, uh, that Police Academy series allowed him to retire uh, in, in wealth and happiness <laughs> and just be a fun, like every four years I'll slap my name on something kind of producer, yeah. which is, that's the life, you know, I, in my opinion, that's what you want to get to. So that's cool. Lad Company, uh, in association with Sir Run Run Shah, he's a East Indian um, British guy. If you know kind of what I'm talking about with that, sorry, I'm maybe not saying it very mm -hmm. eloquently, but he's an he's a he's an he's very he's a knighted English uh, part of the aristocracy to some degree, but he's 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 from uh, and his roots of his family go back to the, the British occupation of India. He's an eccentric character who dumped some money into this thing. Tandem Productions actually produced it. Warner distributed it. Lad Company, you know, was the production house. So you have all these different interests and it, it's through the years, it's made Blade Runner a very complicated rights issues. Even Vangelis maintained the rights over his own music in the film, and that made releasing the soundtrack of his music sort of impossible for 10 years and and made, you know, broadcast versions of it like would differ slightly for various reasons. And you had to get all these producers and controlling interests, all of whom lost money on Blade Runner in 1982, to agree on releases. And that was just a really, really difficult thing. So, so it wasn't a big studio movie, even though it was a. It was hardly an independent movie either. It was this weird right. Blade Runner partnership that produced the thing and brought it into being. But the company we get to see at the beginning, thank goodness, uh, in its awesome green uh, line art tree on 
black screen, which matches the credits to a T, is the Lad Company, which is right. Because, again, as with most of these type product, pr projects, it was the Lad Company who was really like, I know there's all these problems, but geez, we like what we're seeing. They were the only ones that were like happy throughout this process with what was happening. Yeah. Everybody else was up in arms and there was all this pressure, blah, blah, blah. We talked about that during Alien 2. It was like Ridley, when he stopped making commercials, you know, the first movie he made was The Duelists, which was this really great, but still rather modest period um, adventure tale. Um, that would cost, you know, trillions to make today. But back then, it was just, you found the right places where you wanted to shoot in France and Italy, and you just went off and did it, and it was cool. Yeah. Swords and uniforms, no problem. We've been using those in movies for years. We'll just go into the warehouses and pick them out for you. Um, and then Alien, which, again, had a lot of producers breathing down their necks on them all the time. Thought didn't, you know, producers that, even though they were filmmakers, were a were just obsessed and terrified of the thing becoming an art film instead of a big commercial property. And, you know, we talk about the corporate films of today, which these don't even vaguely resemble those. <laughs> yeah. You know, they don't even, there's nothing about them. Everything's on film. Everything's like, has to be created with rather genius. The only computer animated thing in Blade Runner is the logo that Joel's talking about. Um, so I guess it is comparatively cheap looking, or at least the style is very. This is what it, this is what a modern logo looks like in 1982. You know, it definitely <laughs> right. has that feel to it. But man, we watched it in 4K, and there was no shimmering and all that line art and stuff, and it just it's it's just perfectly preserved. And the music sounds great. Yep. It doesn't sound like it's coming from a speaker inside a uh, coffee can. It sounds full and lush, just on the logo. Yeah. And when the, the drum, uh, when those drums kick in and the blackout, uh, we talked about Vangelis's musical score in depth back in the electronic musical scores episode, way back at the beginning of season two, someplace. Go find mm -hmm. it. And. You know, Vangelis, known for his synthesizers and his keyboards and his twinkly piano, and there's plenty of that in this. But there's, I said in my print review, and I'll say it again now, there's so much more. There's all this, and this is really true of his music from this era in general. There's so much more than just that, no offense to these guys, because they're awesome, but that sort of airy, breathy, tangerine dream like computer sequenced sound, which is really awesome. I still really, really love it. But that stuff mm -hmm. feels retro like you think it would because it it really is the synthesizer trends of the day and the sounds of the day. And this stuff isn't, this sounds like it's otherworldly and it's it's exists out of time. There's certainly lots of weird synth washes and lots of, Arps and Rollins and, uh, you know, so the stuff is there. But because you have all these Middle Eastern chants and all this sort of howling Japanese, like, percussion and stuff and these big giant drums and the, what, the wind chimes, the wooden blocks, just all this crap that sounds like he's recording it in an airplane hangar. It just yeah. feels huge in a way that little 
analog keyboard scores of the day, even the best ones, don't achieve that because because they just don't have it's uh, it's a it's a musical vision thing that you just yeah. have to have in your head. You want the stuff to sound this big instead of instead of like this. And it yeah, makes all the difference in the world because it helps greatly expand this world. The first thing we see is a very real thing. It's this uh, Coke refinery of some kind or this oil refinery that's actually out, outside of actual Los Angeles. And they shoot this sort of low helicopter flyover of that um, after we watch the credits roll by. And... It's amazing. And then behind that is this matte painting of this giant model that they made. Like, yeah, we've seen some of the great models and we've talked about some of them. The 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 spaceship in the black hole, if you've ever seen the soundstage, they shot that model on and how detailed it was. This That's the idea we're talking about here. This this building or it's multiple pyramid like buildings with these weird angled side towers and stuff. It's a miracle of architectural design it's really really special um sid mead he's credited as a as a future visualist and he designed the flying cars that we see in this opening sequence and he designed certain things by drawing them and then of course they had to be realized by the production mm -hmm. team but that building is kind of amazing and let this be a lesson to people uh peter jackson and other you know, cool, but still sort of untethered to reality directors of the day that if they were to do this opening today, that you would zoom all the way in and you would zoom directly through the wall and through the window and right into this character's eyeball. This, that is impossible. No camera could do that. You'd feel the impossibility of it when you were watching it. You would feel the digital fakery of it, regardless of how well it looked. Right. This opening achieves that. You fly over the city of industry, this this gross industrial park that's belching fire and smoke into the atmosphere, and you hit this giant labyrinthian, just massive in scale, corporate headquarters of the makers of these androids that are causing the world so much problems and the uh, sort of ire of our story but he uh -huh. does it by moving in he, we're definitely moving in and zooming in you get that feeling but he does it by cutting by skipping time by being efficient the way he shows the way he cuts back and forth between a ceiling fan on a on a floor and then a window where you can see a fan moving and then mm -hmm. back it's it's ingenious and it's so yeah. artful and it's just absolutely visually stunning and it's sort of nothing's even happened and it's already the movie's already kind of taken your breath away yeah eventually um, we land on this is kind of my we'll talk about eyes the whole show but eventually we land on the eye of this uh blade runner holden mm -hmm. is his name and and his eyeball is basically his iris of his eye. The gloss over his eye is reflecting this yeah. this urban hellscape back at us before we get on with the scene. What were you gonna say, Joel? Well, I mean, and then but we gotta talk about the the little uh, the narration that pops up on the on the screen. Um, well, we could quick. just read but, it. But 
Or maybe before sure. we get too much more into the show, we should just read one of those four-sentence plot synopsis so that I don't have to keep telling the story of the thing. Um, sure, but uh, what, one of the things I wanted to quick touch on... But you shouldn't be learning me, the story um, of Blade Runner from us, right. y'all. This is really a show where you should be watching this before you dive into <laughs> a, um, a deep dive. Things... I think that's true of all deep dives, but really don't don't right. listen to our episode on Blade Runner without having seen it. Just trust us that even if you don't like it, and a lot of people don't, you'll you'll be a better student of cinema for having seen it. It's an important one to cross off that list, I think. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that uh, occurred to me uh, when you were talking about the score um, and, and the multitude of different things that Vangelis used to, to, to create this soundscape, uh, it also uh, it play, plays into the art direction uh, and, and creation of uh, and this world building uh, that's in Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sure. There's a lot of electronics and digital and um, artificiality to the 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 visual scape and the audio scape, but there's also a lot of natural elements as well. Uh, and and I think that it, it it really does help build the world that you can see that this is like there's a logic to. Uh, the design of all of these things, thinking about where would we as humanity go as we like, what are the natural things that we would hold on to? And what are the things that we would create artificial versions of or 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 try to improve with technology? Um, and, uh, and, and there's and to me, that's one of the really effective things about how this how this movie looks is the 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 work the the collaboration and juxtaposition of that natural and artificial um so it it, it so that it all just completely makes sense and interiors um, like deckard's apartment is based on um the waterhouse who's the guy uh frank lloyd wright yeah thank you frank lloyd wright very it's got his it's especially his little uh, concrete tiles and stuff like that. It's mm -hmm. and it's it's just full of stuff. Like Joel said, it's full of actual stuff, old clocks, photographs, like just organic mm -hmm. things compared to what we expect the future to be. The police station when we enter it is an actual train station where they shot it, oh. and it feels out of the forties or fifties. It it gives you that noir feel. They show the building, which the, looks like some mm -hmm. futuristic building. When you, when you get inside of it. It's super old school. And yeah, and it pans down and you get and you see the top of the office area. Yeah. And you see that layer of caked on dust and dirt and grime and crap that has been forgotten up there for <laughs> yeah. years. Yeah. It, it uh, to me that was one of the uh, one of the great things that uh in in watching it this time was seeing that level of of detail of you know, it's not like everything is shiny and and clean and this is very much a forgotten or you know, disposable land. Um, so it's um, it, anyway, it, let, the idea of Meads was that that all this technology and all this fancy stuff was built upon the upon the old world, just like we would do it. So you get to experience both in a really brilliant way, visually, where you're because the, you really get the feeling of an old, out of time, you know, like post war noir pick 
Mm -hmm. but it has all this amazing tech and visual stunning stuff on it and it's there's there's a lot of stunning moments and we'll talk about them but no more stunning than the zoom in on the on the Terrell Corporation's corporate headquarters at the beginning of the film it's just yep. it's just amazing looking stuff um and then we start with a really super weird and this is such a brave way to start the movie this interrogation scene or this mm-hmm. interview, it's just a test, Holden says. Um, um, let's, uh, but yeah, so, but let, we, you know, we do get established at the, at the very top that um, the Terrell Corporation has made these replicants uh, that, you know, they're, uh, and as we find out later, their, their motto is more human than human, um, you know, that it, it made to, do some of the menial labor uh you know that it's that dream we'll have we'll have androids to do all of the the you know the crap work leaving us to just be you know in in leisure and 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 pleasure um but they uh but through um you know there was a revolt of some replicants <laughs> which led to essentially the law that all replicants needed to be disposed. There are no replicants allowed on earth. Um, you know, replicants can still be used to fight wars and do all of these other things, but uh, in the no very replicants- expensive and very costly colonization of outer space, they're still very much in vogue. And that's why this company is on top of the world financially, but they're not allowed on earth because they're, they're, they've become sophisticated enough to have their own ideas about things. That's the only way that a mutiny can happen or a revolution Mm -hmm. can happen is that, you know, and they are constantly trying to find a way to keep them sophisticated, to keep them, their performances super high. They're superhuman and strength and intelligence and all this stuff, but they, they're, they're not stable. And right. we, we through the, the replicant characters in the film, there's four of them. We get to we get to see all the different sides of that and stuff, which is really important. But yeah, Joel's Joel's right. Bloody mutiny on an outer world, whatever, caused them mm-hmm. to be banned on Earth. And they're they're these uh, what does it say? They're these Blade Runner units, the police squad who were assigned to kill them on site. This isn't called execution. It is execution. Called, retirement. called retirement. Retirement. Is how that ends. So, so we see uh, Morgan uh, Morgan Paul, I believe is the actor's name, um, from Norma Ray and a bunch of other stuff from around the same time. He was hired because he resembles Harrison Ford somewhat to basically be Harrison during the screen tests. So he went through the screen test process and read with all the different characters that were going to be doing these different jobs, the ones, the American ones, anyway. And um, and then was given this little role in the movie uh, kind of as a reward and as a sort of fun until you really get a look at him with his voice. And he does he res- doesn't look like Harrison Ford, but he does resemble him much more than any other actor you could get and much more than an actor you would get. If you were really casting the role, you would make sure he didn't resemble your leading man at all. You wouldn't. I mean that's a casting trick. You don't you try and not have a bunch of people that look the same in your movie. It just confuses people. So this mm-hmm. is a little sleight of hand where they play where like that. Is that him? Is that our oh nope, that's some other guy. And that's kind of fun. And Morgan's fantastic well, I, in this scene. Yeah. 
it also plays into a debate that we'll get into uh, as we get further into the movie um, about about the nature of these Blade Runners. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, so we get so we have Holden and um, we and and because there uh, there there's been reports of uh, some. Yeah, although we don't know um, that yet. So. The cool thing about this scene is that we don't know any of that. We're explained that after the fact. But this starts with a new employee coming in and sitting down and a guy sitting right. across the table right. from him who could just be some corporate stooge. We don't know. He's got this sort of weird st steampunk-looking laptop thing in front of him with a little air bladder and uh, uh -huh. strange little device that comes up in front of his face that he looks through. It's all very practical and very cool looking and it looks it looks like a sci-fi thing but it looks like it was built like for the wizard of oz at the same time i there's a that aspect is very much to that machine it's he, he says uh this is this is a test and the weird chemistry and the weird juju between these two characters as they're talking to each other is extremely tense and uncomfortable right from the start mm -hmm which is great. It's really well played. The new employee of the Terrell Corporation's name is Leon, and he doesn't seem like the brightest bulb in the bunch. And um, But he's asked these really, really strange questions, and I guess we won't get into the details of the questions that the show will take all day. We're only in the first scene in the movie, right. half an hour into the show. But um, He's asked these really, really weird questions that are we learn later are designed mm -hmm. to provoke an emotional response. And they provoke an emotional response in us. Not just the way it's shot and edited or the way it sounds, which is very stylistic. It's it's it they're just weird questions that make you go, what? You know, yeah. they make you yeah. react. We're people and we react to these the way people are supposed mm -hmm. to. Um replicants react to them. In similar ways, but in different ways, which is what this test is. It's designed to identify replicants. And when Leon, who's, who is a little bit of a dullard compared to other replicants, is clever enough to know that he's been made, so he's smarter than he's letting on, essentially. Yeah. Um, he's a really interesting character. Uh, somehow got into this, like infiltrated this uh testing room with a handgun and shoots holden again in a really stylized kind of crazy way and then we cut quite back yeah. out to the world of the story where we're it's safe and quiet and everything's cool and that is when we meet our hero waiting in line to order uh some some uh dumplings it looks like and some noodles it actually looks pretty appetizing mm -hmm. So, uh, so he's sitting down and of course in the theatrical version, I won't say what he says here, but there's a long voiceover where he introduces himself to us. Yeah. Um, in the version Joel and I just watched. And I believe, and I believe he describes his own legs. As, Does he? As I walked up to the, <laughs> I, I, to the Chinese I noticed my cart. I noticed my reflection and my yeah. legs went all the way down. And <laughs> the legs are coming. They're coming. Don't worry. Yeah, no, they're, they're just coming, maybe yeah. not in the same order you're used to. It's not quite yeah. that big a ripoff, but, but yeah, he explains everything His marriage, what he used to do for a living. I mean, it's just Johnny, the explainer in the worst possible way. Yeah. It's helpful though. Those voiceovers, I can never watch Blade Runner without them, without knowing what they are in my head. And they do explain yeah. a lot, 
and that's useful. That's welcoming in a way. They're not particularly well done. They're a little heavy in the way they're written compared to the way the film, it, it, its actual dialogue is, isn't super stylized, is very straightforward and very sort of weird and minimalist. So they're not grateful in that. But what you find, whether you've seen it with voiceovers or not, is that when the voiceover is gone, you're required as an audience member to put the pieces together yourself. And it's so much better when you're, yep. when you're made to do that because yeah. everything you need to know is there. You don't need to know this stuff. Uh, he gets hijacked by a very memorable, uh, Harrison Ford. We're talking about as Rick Deckard, just about to start eating his noodles. And he gets hijacked by, uh, by, a. Uh, um, a cop played by Edward James almost in a weird, the character's name is Gaff in a weird performance that almost basically created from the ground up. This guy on the yeah. page was almost nothing and, and almost brought his, his, his Hispanic, uh, history with him. He brought his Hungarian history with him. He basically created this language that this guy speaks. Um, it, it, and, you know, was into the makeup job that's done on him and the contract lenses yeah. and he walks with a cane. He's disabled in a way. We don't know his story at all, but he's got all these weird eccentric details about him that are super, super fun. And the best thing about him, and we'll talk about this every time it shows up in the movie, is he, his hobby is origami. <laughs> Yeah, and that's an important part of the storytelling, as it turns out eventually. Um, so he grabs Deckard, threatens him to come in, drops the name of his previous uh, previous commanding officer, and Deck sees the writing on the wall. And he's like, "Well, I better cooperate here. It's just going to be nothing but trouble for me." And they get in a little flying car, just like we'd hope they'd be in the future. And we fly off to police headquarters. And again, a, just a visual, the flying sequence is shot with him still eating his Chinese food through the windshield of this flying car, flying police car. So there's, we see the city reflected in it. We see what's inside of it. We see all the little controls. We see some, um, recycled, this film recycles a lot of stuff, but one thing it recycles whole hog from alien is the the purge graphics and all that is like exactly the stuff that was on the computer displays in alien when they're mm -hmm. landing that drop ship and it's neat it's neat to see that stuff again maybe this yeah. all takes place in the same world it, it certainly could it it's a different it's an entirely different kind of movie but it could be the same universe basically if you yeah. wanted it to be yeah. um and that sequence is great. The music, it, there's several moments in the film where the music just allowed to take over. And when you have a musician of Angelus's caliber, you, he knows when it's my turn to just to take stage. I mean, he knows to really do it. And he delivers a stunning cue here. Joel talks about when we cross fade from the thing approaching the landing threshold to, uh, to the train station where they filled it. When you zoom down and see the cross section of the walls and the, and the roof on his desk. We see that most of the offices in this place don't have the luxury of a ceiling at all. They're just open right. air to the world. But, uh, Lieutenant Bryant played by the great M. Emmett Walsh sitting behind the counter with a grit, with a 
grin on his face. I was going to describe, I was going to use a well-worn adjective for the type of grin. That <laughs> I yeah, decided, it's, eh, I'm it not is a very, it's a very knowing grin. It yeah, is I mean, a, uh, a little bit of smugness, a little bit of, Walsh is uh, just fantastic. All he does yep. really is deliver exposition, but that great. Hey pal, you wouldn't have come if I just asked you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Walsh. Yeah. And something he, about Walsh's yeah. line delivery. Oh, we'll stand out here all day if we have to. Kind of cold out here. Sure hope we <laughs> don't have to. <laughs> yeah. His the way, just the way um, he talks is so awesome. So he's a great, he he lightens this film up a little bit, just a teeny little bit, and it needs yeah. that in a couple of places where it can get it. Um, he basically says four replicants tried to break into the Terrell Corporation. Um, they're this latest kind. You can't see them coming. They look and act just like people. The only mm -hmm. way to get them is with the Voight comp test, which you know is doesn't work as well as it used to because they're psychologically more complex. We later don't, not in this scene, but we later learn why. Um, the, the, and then we get these, it's great. It's all exposition. We get these dossiers on the four replicants. We get the story about how there were six of them, but two of them died, uh, in the theatrical version and all other versions. He, it's screwed up. There's a missing replicant because it's one of them died. And then there's five of them. Uh -huh. And then there's, more later when he says you got to kill more there's more than there should be the math is all completely wrong the final cut that joel and i watched fixes all this it's just all fixed so the math is correct and you're not going what i thought it was huh? hey. oh. every time the numbers come up they're goofed in the original because <laughs> of all these things that they moved around and because there was an entire replicant character who was in the film that they cut out. There's a replicant funeral that we get to watch, just part of the work print that was shot and exists, but it was not part of the final cut. So uh, maybe we'll talk about that. I don't know. We're going to run out of time. Um, no. This scene is great, though, in that it gets a ton and ton of stuff done. Uh, Decker doesn't want to have anything to do with this. He's got that great line I was quit when I came in here. I'm twice as quit now. That's a fantastic noir bit of dialogue by whoever wrote it fancher or or david peoples are the credited screenwriters on the film and as he's about to leave he says hey you know the score man you're either cop or you're little people and he's threatening them mm -hmm. and he's like oh okay so you really like you're really gonna pull the you know threatening me card i don't have any choice here and he was like nope he talks about how these new Nexus 6 replicants are so human-like that the built-in safeguard against them taking over the universe, essentially, is that they only live for, what is it, four years? Five years? Four years. Four years. Four-year lifespan, which you can see the look on Deckard's face like, Jesus, that's kind of awful. Um, mm -hmm. Harrison Ford gets criticized for being sort of a blank slate in this film, but that's not really true. Every time they cut to him, he gives you something that's really kind of neat. Um, but it is it is relatively subtle for a guy who's confronting all this stuff head on. He he's he doesn't let you in all that much. He doesn't want to be here. He doesn't want to be doing this. So it, all of it is I don't want to I don't want to deal with what this means. I'm just going to do yeah. it and be done with it. He's clearly an alcoholic. Every time he's in a place where he can drink, he's drinking something. Mm -hmm. Um 
I don't want to diagnose him, but he just, he drinks a ton. I suspect he's an alcoholic. And I think that's an important part of the character and the way he reacts to things. Um, and how he, why, how he uses that to self-medicate sort of the horrors of his past. Um, the origami that's made, Gaff is sitting in the back of the scene, quietly listening and observing. Again, without it ever being said, you get the, you get the feeling that Gaff wants to be top cop, that he's pissed that he's not on the case. It's clearly because of the way he's limping around where he's not really mm -hmm. capable of doing some of the stuff that Ford does. Um, Ford mentions Holden. He says, we'll have Holden do it. And he's like, yeah, Holden, Holden, who we think we see killed is actually still alive. Um, he can't, he can breathe. Okay. As long as no one unplugs him. Yeah. <laughs> Wallace says there's a scene that again, that was cut from the film, the two big deleted scenes, definitely replicant funeral. And the other one is, is Deckard going to visit Holden and Holden giving him the, the warning um, yeah, those two scenes are awesome deleted scenes in Blade Runner lore. We will, there's too much to go into about them, but we'll, we'll just leave it there. At least we mentioned them. Um, so, uh, you, you know, we don't so, know what these next exists yeah. are. We don't know if you're going to be able to spot them. Uh, Terrell corporations got one. Um, you want, you, we're going to send you over there to examine it and see if the machine works. And yep. he's like, and if the machine doesn't work, and Walsh gives the knowing look, and boom, we cut. We're back in a spinner, one of these flying cars, and we're flying off to Terrell Corp, which, again, we get to see from a bunch of different angles. Again, it's people were bored with this movie because it's a lot of architecture mm -hmm. and a lot of effects and a lot of drawn-out driving from here to there, a lot of repeated stuff which we'll talk about uh leon's opening interview gets repeated many many times throughout the movie in a really right. really brilliant way when he's listening to it on a machine it's the version we heard when he's remembering it and we're hearing it it's an alternate take where he sounds slightly different and the live readings are sort of different because memory is different than a right. recorded thing that's again that's a tiny little detail that's lost in a huge movie that you really only get when you watch it on your 13th time right but it's there and it's great it's the every moment is loaded up with something something that has some sort of deeper meaning like that which is very very right. cool now i what I, i'm i'm trying to speaking of memory yeah. uh, i'm trying to remember now was it uh is it uh bryant that shows him who the who he's looking for you know the the leon roy press and zora Yep. Or is that at Terrell? Okay. No, so that's, 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 that's with, that's with, that's Brian. That's what I thought. Okay. That's so, um, yeah. So we do, you know, we do see, okay, here's, you know, here's who they are and here's, here's who you're looking for. And here's why they're, you know, so, like a couple of these guys, like, especially Roy is like, uh, superhuman you know, strength, he's a military, military, strategic soul, intelligence, yeah. probably the leader. Yep. A mil exactly. Mm -hmm. A military, veteran yep. essentially then one's um, a pleasure one's a pleasure model one's a zora you know, one's is kind of the, a grunt zora is the second one played by joanna cassidy she's an assassin yeah nice uh so, leon um, who we've already met is uh basically a a, a laborer a load a load mm -hmm. guy who works in the docks someplace and just works 24 super hours a strong, day without super a break. simple yep Super strong. I, again, I think he's less simple than we think, but he's 
he is very direct and straightforward compared to yeah. these other characters who are a little trickier. And Pris, basic pleasure model. Nothing special about her. She, <laughs> she like just basic, like the kind you would send on a military transport. Yeah, so uh, it, it yeah. just it's, people have sex with her all the time. It's just yeah. it's yeah. Uh, you know a sex slave basically, uh, played by Daryl Hannah. So you know. It's the pretty much the it's not Daryl Hannah's first movie by a long shot, but it's it's her first like wow it's your first your name in the opening credits by itself you know what I mean um, performance mm-hmm. by her Cassidy uh, is fantastic uh, Leon is played by um, uh, what's the Eric, Brian James uh, yeah Brian James the wonderful wonderful actor and Roy Batty's played by Dutch import uh, Rutger Hauer who had made his debut uh, two years earlier, very memorably, his English-speaking debut in Nighthawks as a very verbose terrorist. Mm-hmm. And Rutger Hauer is a through-the-roof guy. And at this time, he was he mellowed with age like we all kind of do. But at this time, he, was, he just came into the room like a rock star. When they came to the reading, he wore like a big leopard print coat and a huge pink feather boa. And he had like eye makeup on and stuff. And I mean, he just came in the room, like you can't not deal with me. I'm here and I'm going to yeah. take over everything that I'm a part of. And that's what he does in the movie as Roy yeah. Batty. It's, it's a, it's an incredible performance. And we've got a lot of Rucker Howard performances that I love, but it's just tough to top this one because it's so amazing. And very famously, I guess we get to it, but we might as well talk about it now. Cause it happened during the read through. Uh, he's got this. He's a he's a guy who once he gets going, like does a lot of speechifying, and he's got this big monologue that he gives near the end of the film, where uh, he it's the urban legend, the film legend, which is false, is that he somehow just said all this stuff on the spot and it was just poetic and brilliant. That's not accurate. Mm-hmm. He didn't really make up any of it. All of it is in the script save the very final line which he didn't even make up on the set he made up on the read-through before a set had even been built but he still improvised a very key line that's a very important part of Blade Runner lore and when he did it he looked down the table at David Peoples the one of the two screenwriters that were still involved at this point and he winked at him and he's basically saying nothing you did man he didn't know that he wasn't the one who wrote most of it but Nothing sacred. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to do whatever I want. And Ridley, because he's not a screenwriter, is going to let me. And it's really obvious that that's what's going on here. I'm going to upstage the hero. I'm going to do whatever I want. Uh, Rutger Hauer as Roy Batty is the stuff of film legend. And it started started with his performance at the read-through, where he's already performing for people. All right, Terrell headquarters. Yep. So we get to here's Terrell a, headquarters where we set, get right? to meet Terrell. Yeah. You love, I love, I mean, this is one of the most beautiful interior set designs I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah. The way yeah. it's lit, the way the models and the mats are, are projected behind and outside the windows. Um, the way this, the, uh, the characters are always smoking cigarettes because every, they want everything smoky. And when they can't get the smoke from a cigarette or that's not enough, they get smoke other ways, so there's all these beams and shafts of light. That's apparent already in the movie, but this scene is where we establish that smoky, weird future. This is a, this is a place of wealth. It's a giant, like dining room sort of formal conference table. 
Uh, they have an owl that's flying around freely in the room. Is that a real owl? Of course not. Of course it's mm -hmm. a synthetic owl. Even the richest people in the world don't have a real owl. What are you, crazy? Is the right. sort of attitude about it. And this is the scene where we meet uh, both Dr. Eldon Tyrell, who runs the Tyrell Corporation, and his niece, Rachel. And they're obviously high up in the hierarchy of the building. Tyrell owns and runs the thing. Um, and you get the feeling that she's sort of his protege of some kind. She's pretty smart. She's pretty deliberate the way that she interacts with uh, Ford. Yeah. And she's just got... She's got a lot of wit and a lot of... It's hard to explain, but... She's got a lot of noir sort of tough chick to her personality. But yeah. I think through Young... And I don't know if this is conscious or just that she's just barely a kid and just starting out in movies in this film. She has this childlike naivete to her at the same time. And these things are at war with themselves within her. So even though... So again, it's this really weird, deep, character that's you could say well it's she's inconsistent but it really is one thing is sort of a performance to mask the other is which is yeah. the feeling that you get and and only on a few choice occasions do you really get what she's really thinking and it's only when she's sort of at her most emotionally vulnerable uh sean young's not an actor i particularly like a lot but you, you, you and when morgan paul was working with the two rachel's he he was sure that it wasn't going to be her because he didn't think she was that she just didn't think she was refined or making accurately like choices. But Scott saw she is this thing in a way that I want that essence to be on screen. And I believe I'm going to be able to capture that. And he does. Rachel's yeah. great in this. And this Sean Young's is good in this as she's ever going to be. Um, right. And she made a real career for herself, to be fair to her. No way out in Dune to a lesser degree. But throughout this era, she made a, a career of playing these characters with these really stern sort of confrontational exteriors that when when they're revealed are 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 really vulnerable and 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 really deeply human and like frightened people yeah. and she yeah. really really does that well and has never done it better than she does in yeah she she plays that moment where where at a moment of revelation she really uh captures how a facade can crumble away leaving that uh, leaving a raw uh without, a raw naivete or a raw without saying almost anything. childlike without saying anything that's that is one of yeah i think that we could say is that's one of her 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 gifts one of her natural gifts we'll uh, get that, to that that in, she was uh, able to Blade utilize her deep dive episode four because this is not going well <laughs> folks all right um, um anyway and really i'm sorry if you've listened to our show did you really think that this was just gonna be a, oh, you yeah, never we're know gonna fly through this you never um, know so, it's only yeah, a two-hour so, movie but it is really flo loaded with a lot of meaning we've this right. is great storytelling because we've seen the void comp test before now we know what it is we have some yep. expectations of these weird questions although they get weirder and weirder every time which is great um, right, and we only and we only <clears throat> hear just a tiny handful of these questions. They're really random, and then we find out, you know, later he's asked hundred. He's asked hundred of well hundred plus questions. Hundred plus questions. Yeah, with uh, the so benefit you can only of imagine one, some of the random. Crossfade. 
where we yeah. skip all that time. But you do feel, again, it's really well done. You do feel like time has passed. The crossfade mm -hmm. is a magic thing, you know? It's a magic thing where a crossfade, time yep. is fast. A cut, time has not passed. Or if you're going to cut, you got to show some, you got to cut from one big change to another. You can't just cut yeah. to some future time. You, you have, to, you have we, to establish we, we, we that time. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Eldon Terrell um, basically says, you know, well, okay, I'll bring out the replicant, but before we do it, let's, I want to see how this test works. I've never seen this. Um, why don't you do it on a, on an actual person and let's see what a negative test looked like. And yeah, he, he says, what on you? And he's like, no, try her. So it's Rachel that takes the Voight contest and it's, it it it's you see that the technique of giving the test is to be confrontational and to keep the subject off balance just like yeah. more just like holden was doing in the opening scene he does that with rachel he doesn't let her change the subject he only lets her sort of answer the questions directly um if she talks back he hops on her and keeps her on task so it's a very yeah. confrontational thing and rachel's having a little bit of fun with it until she isn't it's <laughs> yeah. somewhere along the line. This becomes a really uncomfortable, awful, invasive, personally invasive sort of thing. And even though she, she does her duty, she's rattled by the end of it. And Eldon says, you know, Hey, would you leave the, leave the two of us alone for a moment? She walks out the way Rachel walks, just her shoulder pads, everything. Uh, we don't get any close-ups. Hand in the of, pocket. Yeah, yeah. We don't get any close-ups of her legs or anything lascivious like that, like a noir thriller. But the way she walks on those heels, it, it's it's unlike it's it, it's weird. It's alien almost. It's like mm -hmm. it's really really strange. You know what and, it made me think of? Hmm. It made me think of Bugs Bunny cartoons when. Uh, or like cartoons when they do a noir type, you know, where they do a funny noir thing. And when the femme fatale comes in, how, or, you know, how, uh, you know, how they walk and, you know, and again, that was kind of. And yet done, you know, so it's, there's, no, a, I, there's a, like a artificiality. Yeah. But there's no swagger to, the, to it. She's not line. Jessica yeah, no, Rabbit. Yeah. No. Yeah. Not Jessica Rabbit. She's but like, like a in, kid in trying bugs, to walk yeah. like that is what it feels like. And it's oh yeah, great yeah. And it's 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 awesome. I don't know how to mm -hmm. explain it. And it's so unique that they couldn't really, when they had to try and recreate it for the sequel, they couldn't really figure it out just by watching it. <laughs> they had to get her Sean back involved to explain to them this is how you do it, like physically. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That just shows you that there's a lot that there's a lot going on with her and with her as a performer and that character all in one. And that's what you, mm -hmm. that's what you like to see in these sorts of things. So, yeah. So, so Eldon drops the, yeah. drops the bomb, uh, or it's really, well, Decker, it's Decker, Decker yeah. guesses it. She's, and, and this is where the spoilers start rolling in hard, hard and heavy. She's a replicant. Well, you've she? already seen it. Yep. You, I know, I know dear audience, you've already seen it. Well, all right. <laughs> she's a replicant isn't she and he's like yep. how many questions did it take and he's like I she doesn't know <laughs> and he's like yeah. how many questions dr eldon terrell played by again in a sort of weird otherworldly like scholarly but out of touch with humanity kind of way by uh joe turkel with his giant trifocal glasses <laughs> oh I, those glasses those glasses are awesome that you know the 
the, I guess glasses technology has gone backwards in the future, but <laughs> right. But while other things have advanced, <laughs> I guess at their expense, but nevertheless, those right. glasses are effing brilliant. And Turkel, Turkel is such an exacting presence in this. He's exactly what you need to think of his turn as the bartender in the shining. And he's just awesome. I love him. I love him. Uh, and he, he breaks it down for us. Yeah, she's a replicant. She's kind of a new breed of them where we don't tell them that they're replicants and we put, you know, implants in their brains so that they, what does he say? It's all important what he says. It's all exposition, but it's all super important. He says, um, well, it's, I mean, these creatures only have four years to develop themselves emotionally. Mm hmm. And that's what's making them crazy, and that's what's making them lash out, and that's what's making them violent. We think if we, what the term he uses is if we gift them with a past, we provide a cushion for these emotional, for their emotional development, and as a result, we can control them better. So the, so it's not the intense physicality or any of that stuff that Rachel's displaying. She's the most human replicant that Deckard's ever come across because she thinks she's a person, believes it. And it makes her really, really difficult to detect, but it does sort of show a more, a slightly more stable version of these androids than where you see throughout the rest of the movie. So in a sense, those memories are working. They're doing their job. They've convinced her that she's had a whole childhood and a whole existence. Um, and that's, that's the more you think about it, the more kind of crazy of an idea that is and how hard it would be to create a whole individual past for somebody artificially in their mind. But, right. But it's a huge idea that's really, really fun and that we get to kind of explore. Um, and he's incredulous. And you, again, you can see from Ford's reactions, this isn't good. This is terrible. Yeah, is Every time they make a new version of these, they make them worse. You know, like you could just kind of get that he's not into it. Um, where does he go from here, Joel? Help me out. Uh, so, yeah. So, well, this is so then we get uh, so then Deckard, you know, after after this conversation with Terrell, well, then he gets to go search Leon's apartment. Oh, right, right, right. And he finds, and in the apartment, he finds a batch of photos and, and, uh, an animal scale and, yeah, we think uh, it's a a little scale. Yeah. That's, that's, it actually looks like a, we just like a, like a sequin. Look like a sequin to me. It looked like a, and it's kind of, yeah, it looks like a kind of like a, maybe an artificial fingernail, maybe, you know, like a press on nail or something. So it's, yeah. And we, we do come to find out it's a scale. So then he, he gets it checked out. Like he, he's like going around to like some, uh, some of the, uh, restaurant stuff or, or the, you know, in his, in the market, like, it's like a big giant, uh, it's like the Turkish, Turkish marketplace. It's an incredible section, although that's, we're many, many scenes from there, but yeah, yeah he is right. exploring this apartment. The apartment again is like I said, it's not a fancy new apartment with laser scan door locks and big screen right. TVs. It's this old fifties looking apartment. It's fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. and it's technically it's a hotel, same difference. It's a long stay hotel in an old right. town. That's, that's what you would have had it's back a, in the day. It's an extended suites. Yes. And uh, um, and he does this investigating. Ford said, you know, I was interested in the movie and was interested in working on something that was sort of this unique. 
but he he referred to the character as a detective who doesn't do any detecting. All this shit just happens to him. So these sequences mm. are sort of added into the thing so that he has this sequence a little bit was 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 changed slightly so that he was more of a clever detective and especially the deal with the photographs and how that connects everything yeah. that was not ford's idea but that was an answer to a note that ford had about the character where it's right. really not interesting to him to just just bump into these people at random there yep. should be there should be detective work otherwise what's so great about this guy right that he has to be, you know, blackmailed out of retirement to take care of all this. Um, but it's an interesting scene. And the origami, in this case, is made from a match. And it's a guy with an erect penis who's clearly Gaff. Clearly Gaff's chicken in the first scene yeah. is is commenting on what he thinks of Deckard. Uh, this guy, who's this, this little match man, who is jerking himself off. It reflects what Gaff thinks about this particular investigative exercise. Yeah. Um, the origamis is it's fantastic. So, yeah, J Edward James almost the whole thing is just and all the character quirks, everything is so great. Um, he's he's such an important character for a guy that you just don't hear from at all. Mm -hmm. You know, you really do get his attitude. But he's uh, he and he knows it. He's a glorified chauffeur, essentially, in the early goings. Right. Um, so while um, so while Deckert is back in his apartment uh, drinking heavily, because that's what he well, does. Actually, in the elevator um, on the way up to floor ninety-seven, where yeah. he lives, um, you hear a sound behind him while he's sort of resting, and he turns around and and hidden in the shadows in the corner of the elevator is Rachel. Right. And every uh, time we see Rachel, it's always in this. She has these clothes that are just crazy elaborate They're, and yeah. and just make her feel like this wealthy thing that doesn't belong on the streets or in a scratched up elevator like this. She yeah. always feels like a fish out of water in a great way. And mm -hmm. she's she's like, hey, what did he tell you? What's going on? Hey, right. what's going on with me? Like she's, she's yeah, having a he crisis. Won't, he won't see me. He won't see me anymore. He said, yeah, he's uh, like, well, ask Terrell, ask your uncle. He'll tell you. And she's yeah. like, he won't see me. That's a sign um, that Terrell doesn't want to deal with the emotional ramifications of his own choices. And it's a sign that Rachel is motivated to get answers in any way she can. So she seeks right. out, seeks out being rich and powerful. She seeks out Deckard's home right. and rides up there with him. And he, he doesn't want to deal with her either <laughs> at all. Yeah. But eventually, right. and he, so he slams the door in her face and then seconds later opens it up and is like, you know, well, why don't you come in you for a drink? drink? We'll all have you a drink, drink and we'll all yeah. feel better is his solution to this. Yeah. Um, but so while all that is happening, uh, Roy and Leon go oh, yeah. visit, uh, go visit uh, Chu. Well, we uh, see that. He, the, he the, says, Roy, we see Leon outside the Yukon Hotel, which was his hotel room. It's mentioned in mm -hmm. the opening scene. Yeah, Leon. Yeah, Leon. We, we is, see him watching that these two cops are digging around in his place, and we see Batty for the first time. And when we see him, damn. Yep, that's me sort of clenching a fist. It's hard to explain, but this is yeah. It's well, it's yeah. It's it, you're going yeah. Your hand is like a, in it is involuntarily clawing up. Yeah. It's like a dying spider. Exactly. Thank that's, and, that's the image. Yep, and. 
that's a sign that he's dying, basically. We've, we don't know mm-hmm. that for sure now. Maybe he's just weird. We really don't know about much about Roy when we meet him other than what the dossier said. But that's a sign that he's, that he's dying. And, and what's his first thing he says? Time enough, he says, which is a repeated thing throughout. Um, and he says to Leon, when Leon comes up to him, he says, So did you get your precious photos? And Leon says, he doesn't really say anything. He shakes his head. He goes, yep. there was there's somebody there. And he goes, a man? And he's like, he nods. Police man? You see Roy get all yeah, frowny. Yeah, the way he chews, yeah, he chews the words. Uh, it's, I can't man. sit here and reenact every scene, but God, the stuff that, that comes out of Rutger Howard's mouth. I mean, it's just all of it. It's even this weird interrogation we're about to see with the great James Hong. Uh, one of hashtag one of us, Minnesotan, kind of, um, he, uh, he's a guy who does genetic engineering. He creates eyeballs, eyes, you know, the very first shot of a person in this movie was a close up of an eyeball, the trifocals, you know, and the not being able to see really the madness behind the glasses. Eyes are a really, really important thing. They're, uh, they're a thematically important thing. They're the windows to the soul, and yet they're masked by things often in this. Sometimes, if only by reflections. They're a really weird replicant death fetish. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're really they're an important part and an unspoken part of the visual storytelling of of Blade Runner. And so the fact that they are our first visit to one of these, because uh, getting in at the corporate level wasn't working for Leon. He got found out they're going to start with an independent contractor. Who's got an eye shop out on the street to get some information. Any information's mm-hmm. better than what they got now. Hong's in there working. James Hong's greatness. All the bit players in this are just fantastic. Every, you know what I mean? Taffy Lewis, yep. Ab- Abdul Ben Hassan, the snake salesman like just literally every guy that you and girl that you bump into on the street has a huge personality that that is detailed and interesting and and has a feels like it has an off-screen life to it um i love that it's not needed in every damn movie but in a movie like this it's so welcome it's full of characters you know not just characters but characters that are characters and that's fun it keeps the thing lively and cool and Hong's no different. They basically torture Hong. He works in this eye manufacturing area that's like a deep, cold freezer. And they strip him of his protective gear and they ask him questions in the slowest possible way. That is, all, that is we feel the torture of it. Just spit it out. What do you want? And Roy won't do that. He, he you know... He finds yep. out, you know, poor, poor, uh, I can't, uh, Chew. Chew. Yeah, poor Chew. Chew. I, I don't, I, I, he's like, incept dates, life expection, like, we need to know about it. He's like, I, I don't know such stuff. I, I just make eyes, just eyes, eyes. Yeah. Just, that's all I do. You, you next to six, I, I made your eyes. And the, I think, there's a lot of great ones, but I think the best line in the whole movie is Batty saying, Chew, he grabs him and pulls him close to him, not, but not in a threatening way. He's smiling at him, and he says, although it is threatening, he says, Chew, if you could see the things I've seen with your eyes. Yep. 
it's the first mm-hmm. sign it's... that we're meeting a character who, despite some really awful stuff that he does, loves his own life, cherishes life. It's something that we've not seen to this point in any of the other characters that we've experienced who seem to hate and resent their lives. Um, it's a fantastic line. We don't see what happens to poor Chu, but he gets killed. They leave a trail of bodies yeah. everywhere they go. So Leon probably snaps his neck or something. But uh, Chu does say, if you want to get to Terrell, there's a guy like me who can help you. His name is Sebastian. Sebastian who? J.F. Sebastian. F. Sebastian. And where can I find this J.F. Sebastian? Thank you for not skipping the eye shop. Eye works, it's called. Yeah. Because I was skipping right on right on by that to the to the to Rachel and Deckard. Deckard proves to her. He proves to her by citing the highlighted memories that make up her character back to her that she o- that she's only ever kept to herself. That she's a replicant. And as Joel said, the armor drops. The, it just drops completely. She's she yep. and she's not crushed in some sort of histrionic weepy way it's it's this it's just this horror that you see come across her eyes again and her reaction to it is just utter despair what would it be like to find out that you were a manufactured thing that question of identity here it's Mm -hmm. a major major moment and he and that you're that and that everything that you think you remember is fake it was it was put there by someone. They're not your memories. They're someone else's. He says they're Tyrell's nieces. What a yeah. harsh thing to say. And she even recognizes the wit of it by smirking somewhat, but you can just see that it, it's cruel. It's a, yeah. it's an effing cruel thing to say, Joel. And yeah. it feels like a slap in the face when he says it, even though he's not trying to be cool. He's what he's trying what he doesn't like is dealing with the BS. That's clearly what this character's yeah. about. He's he, he we're gonna we want to talk about what's true. Here's what's true. Um, and she, you know, he goes, "Okay, I'm sorry. That was that was terrible of me. Uh, let me get you a drink. We'll have a drink." Yeah. And when he heads off to get her a drink, <laughs> she very understandably storms out of the apartment. Right. Um, um, so then we uh, so then we get to see Pris for the first time. Um, we we meet. Uh, we yeah. We, do we? we, we oh, yeah, we do. Pris. We cut yeah. back to him with the with the with the Vesper machine, the photographic machine. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that, that's so right before Chris, that we we've have, seen yeah, her we headshot, have, and now we get to see her walking down the street, and she just looks like a street vagabond, obviously 24-year-old or whatever it is, Daryl Hannah is, is gorgeous, and she's got this weird cyberpunk sort of wig on, and more mm-hmm. than any other character probably in the story, she looks like a, like we would think a visualization of a, a human robot would look. She really does look like right out of a yeah. comic book, essentially. Yeah, and she's got the you know she's a, got the torn this up is a pleasure model. Yeah. stockings and yeah exactly and she but she looks completely rough around the edges. She looks like somebody who's been you know sexually assaulted repeatedly for three and a half straight years or whatever it is. Right, and that's right. probably what her life has been. She pull she goes over into the corner and pulls a bunch of garbage over herself to snuggle in for the night like a homeless person, and up in a little. Uh, 
mini bus, basically, we'll call it. <laughs> I don't know if that's yeah. the right allegory I'm trying to make. Maybe not. But he pulls up in this thing and out jumps William Sanderson. Uh, who's a, William Sanderson's another really, really good actor. Really, really yep. good character actor. Um, he's One of those guys you've seen in everything. Yeah, you'll know him right away. Yeah. He, he usually play he plays sidekicks and uh, country bumpkins. He's made a career out of it. Uh, he yeah. was most famously cast as uh, Larry of Larry, Daryl, and Daryl on the New Heart Show. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, it's different. He looks different to us. He walks weird. He's sort of, I mean, he's a relatively young man in this film, and he looks kind of old and decrepit. Um, and he drops his keys. I think he's got this big keychain. This we're outside of where he lives. He drops his keys and, and he startles her and she jumps up and she runs and smacks into him and she runs into his, his van and she breaks a window on it. And he, before she can run away, he says, Hey, you forgot your bag. So he says it mm-hmm. and he kind of holds it out to her and they do the whole, ah, like, you know, oh, grabbing yeah. the bag, the distrusting thing but she's Pris is here for a reason it's it's not one of the replicants didn't just bump into james jf sebastian by accident and this is for lack of a better word the perfect seduction for this particular guy being the needy helpless person that he can help is exactly playing into his online porn profile essentially Mm -hmm. um you know they they've she either figured it out or she just intrinsically knows based because of this predetermined role she was created to fulfill in her life how to play this guy and it's it's a fantastic scene where they they kind of laugh at how they freaked out and they there's all these millions of little things that happen as they come together and it ends with him inviting her in why not you know yeah uh, he's and it's great Poor JF. God, jeez. What a tragic character this cat is. Yep. He do, He's not about to invite her in. That's not part of his character. She has to insist almost that he does before he does it. I'd be the same way. Yep. <laughs> I'd be the he's same like, way. I, I'm really uh, hungry, JF. Uh, yeah. You know? Uh, oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It just endears you to him and... And uh, with with the sound, but there's this great scene where he turns around, starts unlocking the door, and we cut to to, uh, Pris, Daryl Hannah, standing there. And as soon as she is not performing for him, the life completely drains out of her face. The music cue really makes it really sinister, but it's the performance. Because it's not some... She doesn't scowl or anything. She just... That active of her being on as a performer and then suddenly not is profound moment and a very threatening moment right and then we make our way up to his apartment it takes a long time to get there this is the interior yep. of the bradbury building Bury. in downtown mm-hmm. los angeles this is one of the most shot buildings in the history of movies and television if you want to see it in all its glory i recommend mike nichols wolf the publishing firm and wolf takes place inside the bradbury but if you do want to see it in a, in a noir thriller where it's completely disguised as an old rundown place no better place than Blade Runner. This is one of the coolest right. practical locations ever. It's so well done. Uh, no, no housing shortage around here. JF says when he's making yeah. small talk, and you can see why. 
he makes his way up this old the old school like metal elevators that they have that like goes cage elevators and uh, heads into his apartment where he's greeted by a couple of genetically engineered yep. toys, right? Yep. Pris asks him on the way up, but must get awfully lonely being here. And he's like, no, I, I make friends. I, I, I got friends. I, I, I make them. I make them. I make them. I make friends. They're my hobbies. And, they're toys. And, uh, I make them. They're toys. Yeah. He's... And so walk in and he's greeted by, you know, they're both greeted by, a menagerie of little things and different yeah, at different stages of, of yeah. replicant like development. Some are yeah. truly just mechanical wonders. Others feel like people, um, although very simple with very direct things, but he comes in and there's no toys waiting for him. So he says home again. And these mm -hmm. two little creatures come up and they say home again, home again, jiggity jig. Good evening, JF. And then they turn yep. around and walk away because that's pretty much all they're programmed to do that we see anyway. And right. Pris is, despite herself, and this, it's different. It's different from the scene down on the street. She's delighted by these things. She has a kinship with them and she's mm -hmm. impressed by this guy now in an actual way and not I'm faking my way, you know what I mean, into some guy's yeah. heart, some poor unfortunate Mark's heart. Or John, if you will, and it's cool. It's again a very cool that we that Ridley captures and that Daryl delivers that change in attitude when we come into this place. Um, I love it, and his apartment is yeah. huge and cavernous. No housing shortage, no doubt. It, it feels like an old, yep. like an old Napoleon era French sort of giant. It high does. Yeah, look, yeah. Uh, place it's just a place completely out of time out of this century even blade runner famously takes place in the year 2019 which every time i've showed blade runner to somebody in the last 20 or so years anyway it always gets a laugh because that just doesn't feel very far off into the future of course it's not yeah. in the future at all anymore that's the problem with dates and stuff but i wouldn't joel i wouldn't trade my los angeles 2019 uh title card for anything it is so cool and vangelis backs it up with the big bitch and sound and and mm -hmm. it's the last you know little what? bit of text we see before the movie starts you know what at least it didn't say present day at least it didn't say present day thank you mm -hmm. yep um so yeah so we have jf sebastian and pris getting to know each other uh they're you know little small talk and and yeah like brian said pris is legitimately kind of enjoying jf sebastian we we learned that jf sebastian again kind of fitting into this theme of of age and growing and and running out of time uh we learned that jf sebastian the reason why he looks so old even though he's a young man is because he's and got is it like methuselah, it methuselah yeah methuselah syndrome where his glands his, age at a really fast rate and the rest of them doesn't keep along we real we find out that's why he's still on earth as well. He'd yeah. be like everyone else. He'd be gone. If he could have passed the physical to join the off world colonies, a shining chance to begin again in a world yep. of opportunity and adventure. We keep hearing that little advertisement playing everywhere. Over we go over, in the city. over yep. um, um, He's, he's and, still on, he's still on earth precisely because he's sort of trapped here. And, and like our antagonists, he's he's uh, he's growing old. Yep. 
against you know at, at an unnatural rate against his will. Yep, against his will. It's an interesting um, point of connection between him and them. I, I find. Yep. So. Um, so then we get. Uh, so, so then we cut back to Deckard. Deckard back in the apartment. Is he drinking? Yes. Yes, yeah, he's, he's drinking. drinking. Yep. Um, and we get he's a little still technology. Got, he's still rocking the the black label whiskey at this point. Yes, he is. I really it was um, too expensive, but you can buy the black label bottle and the the rocks glasses that he has in the movie. If you go to like Amazon, you can buy it, but it's it's like one hundred and twenty bucks. Not too much, right. but too much. Not for too it, much, but if yeah, if you're if you you better you better be a diehard uh, a fan if you're gonna if you're gonna roll up if on you're gonna that. go with that. But it's very cool, black black label, mm -hmm. which is a real company. You know, it's this. Mm -hmm. There's something called the Black Blade Runner Curse. It's okay to talk about this now since we're gonna get to Zora, and and that's about as far as we're gonna get clearly with this. Right. Um, bl black label. The, the film's got something called the Blade Runner curse. Black Label is still around, so that didn't suffer it, but it's got tons of logos. <laughs> Company yeah. logos of companies that were real big in 1982. Pan Am, Atari. TWA, Atari. Yeah, it's just a whole um, yeah. list of them, many, many of which didn't survive much further yeah. than, certainly didn't survive till 2019. Right. Coca-Cola um, made it, though. Uh, that was That was, you know... Good, good for them. Coca-Cola made it. Yeah, Coke made it. Uh, <laughs> the the Kodak, the uh, the companies that evolved Kodak, oh, Kos, yeah, yeah. TDK, those companies all hung around, but none of them were famous for what they were in 1982. By the time 2019 uh -huh. rolled around, for all the photographs we see, it, this you don't need Kodak. I guess you kind of need them, but regular people don't need them like they used to. Let's just say that, right? Right. Um, and that means you got to evolve because when, when you're one of the top two companies that sell something everybody buys and suddenly only just tiny subset of people buy it, you got to you got to evolve as a yeah. company. And, and and they did. So they hung around and Coca-Cola. We are we weren't going to stop drinking. Right. Coca -Cola. right. Um, but we get this is where Ryan mentioned we get our first little bit of sort of future technology. Uh, and this is Deckard actually doing some detecting. Uh, he takes one of Leon's photos. He's able to scan it into scan it into a system. And this is where we uh, what would be uh, what in the in in CSI uh, parlay it would be uh, you know center and enhance yeah. center and enhance. He says um, that. And he he's says able that several times. Yep. Yeah, and he's able to. Uh, uh, he's able to, yeah, go around. He's able to go way into this photograph. It's very mm -hmm. cool and moody how he investigates it. Um, the photograph itself is very arty and weird and shadowy, and there's there's stuff hidden everywhere. But he goes all mm -hmm. the way into it. He goes so far into the photograph that a hair in the photograph is like you can almost see the cellular structure of it. Yeah. When something in the foreground is masking our view, but he goes all the way through the room of, that the picture's taken of into the next room, into a mirror in the next room, and sees within the mirror the profile of a woman lying on a bed um, who seems to have a serpent of some kind tattooed on her cheek. And he can, makes the connection between the, the little sequin scale that he pulled out of the bathtub at Leon's apartment and this woman with a reptile of some type on her face that was in that apartment because it's a picture yep. of that apartment. 
And now he realizes, well, something was in the bathtub. I got to check this out. I'm going to, I'm going to, I got to find out what this is. And the way yep. you find out what that is, is to go to this marketplace that Joel mentioned before, which is, again, when you talk about the co combination of the old and the new, this marketplace is so huge. It's one of the things like you just don't, you just can't pull off with all the CG magic that there is in the world. You just, yeah. even though this is, this isn't some zoomed out huge thing. It's all, you were on ground level with all this stuff, but it's populated and huge and dense and it feels like it's labyrinthian and goes on forever. It's a true talent. You know, I don't, Joel referred to this as Ridley Scott's Blade Runner at the beginning of the show. I never call it that. I never, ever mm. call it that because Ridley didn't write this. He didn't write the book. He didn't write the script, you know, but so and I just and it's not to take credit from him because I'm about to just tell you how awesome he is, <laughs> but I just always feel like it. You're, he's not the final authority on this movie, and you shouldn't let him be. That's my advice to you. I'm not going to really get into our, my disagreements with him, but but just to say that he's not the final authority on this. Just a lot of people have a lot of different takes about what's going on in this film that are every bit as legit. And that's what happens when you're uh, an intensely gifted visualist like Ridley is, and he is, you know, he, he's the guy who he didn't really fire Hampton Fancher. He, he sent him one too many notes and Hampton just said, I'm done with this. You're just, I'm done with this. This I wrote this, yeah work of art script that everybody loves and you're just trying to turn it, you're trying to mutate it. And I don't like that. And, 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 and it's a funny story. It's worth telling here. We'll tell it while we're talking about the market and Ridley. Um, so with Hampton no longer making script adjustments to based on Ridley's every whim, which he has many when he's working on a film, <laughs> um, they had to hire another screenwriter who would do just that. And they found uh, David Peoples barely published or sold anything, but had written something that somebody saw that impressed him and was nearby. And they had this meeting with him and they said, well, first here, read this. This is what we're working on and tell us what you think. And Peoples, uh, Peoples is most famous for writing Unforgiven and uh, the, the adaptation of 12 Monkeys, really, really good screenwriter. This was sort of his first big gig, and he he came back into the room, and they're like, "Well, what do you think?" And he said, "It's perfect. I wouldn't change a word of this." <laughs> Basically, what he said. He said in his brain, he, he wasn't realizing that by saying it's perfect, and I don't want to rewrite any of it. He was saying, "I don't want the job." More or less, he was right. not thinking of it from a career standpoint. He just he just read something that he just thought was amazing, and and. You know, didn't want to tinker with it, basically, or, or didn't have any ideas for how he can improve it. Uh, it's mm -hmm. funny because Hampton and David Peoples, the two screenwriters, didn't meet until the premiere of the film. And they sat and watched it together. And now, whenever you interview them, they're always together, which is I think is very, very cool. Because people, Peoples was brought in as a tool of the producers and stuff to change Hampton's vision. And that's uh, that's two guys with shared credit that shouldn't necessarily get along on a philosophical right. level. But the beauty of that story and that friendship is that it started with people saying without Hampton in the room or anyone to impress, this is awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, this is really, really good. I, I'm not, I can't rewrite it for you. And, and Ridley, that's kind of, he loved that because a, he thought the script was awesome too, even though he wanted his stuff in it. He thought it was awesome. Yeah. 
So he liked that he liked the enthusiasm for the project. And the other thing he liked was David didn't have his own ideas for how to improve it, which meant that Ridley got to provide him with what he wanted, and people should just have to execute it. And some of the very best stuff in Blade Runner is Ridley having some weird idea that David put on paper that was awesome. Mm -hmm. But Ridley... Ridley makes this market what it is. He makes it uh, unlike anything you've ever experienced and yet very, very familiar, like something that you could go downtown and experience right now. He's yeah. such a gifted filmmaker at this point. It, he's in that phase, that Close Encounters, Jaws phase that Spielberg went through, where he's just way too naive to think he can't do something. So that visual ambition and that directing ambition is full-throated and in every frame of the film and mm -hmm. and he doesn't take no for an answer and he makes tons of enemies and he makes everybody uncomfortable but he came up with something that i i can't think of any other but anyone working at the time could have came up with this film and in that way i'll say it once in the only time it really is ridley scott's blade runner it, it's it, yeah. he's the only guy who could have made this movie what it is and the, this market scene is just amazing. So he brings the scale up to this interesting lady character and she puts it in this little, she's got her own little scanner and she finds within the, within the microscopic peaks and valleys of this little tiny flat thing that we're looking at, um, a serial number. So it's a manufactured scale. And he, what does yeah. he say? Uh, fish scale? And she says, no, not fish scale, snake scale. This is from yeah. a snake. Uh, she goes. Uh, here's the here's the number. Uh, Ali Ben Hassan made this 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 snake. He's right down there. And so yeah. after having to get out of a way of a bunch of ostriches and all kinds of crazy traffic that's going on <laughs> yep. in this weird place, the ostriches are my favorite. Um, <laughs> he he does what you should never do to a, a snake in aquarium. He taps on the glass. But Ali Ben Hassan, instead of saying, hey, don't tap the glass, says, oh, you look, it's a customer. This guy we only see through an aquarium, and he's this fully mm. realized guy. I love Ali Ben Hassan. And uh, they, Abdul. I'm sorry. Ab I, I hate to, Abdul I hate to correct ben you. Hassan. Ab Abdul Ben Hassan. Hey, let's get it right, man. That's yep. what you're here yeah, for. I just, yeah, and that's and that's what I just wanted to make sure that we – because we do. He's he's great. And, it, it, again, he Who makes plays the most him, out of this. Say. Why not? Uh, what the heck? I just had it here. Uh, ben Astar. It gives it fun performance. He's only on screen for a couple of seconds, and you he, he totally know who this guy is. He's mm -hmm. a total salesman. He sees someone interested in his snake. He sees big money. He's like a car salesman. He's got a big snake wrapped around his head. He's got this sort of, you know, ethnic exoticism to him. But, but in the end, he's just a guy wanting to make a deal. And it's mm -hmm. that comes across so great. He keeps sort of, and when Deckard identifies himself as a police officer, he plays the whole. Ooh, I'm going to try and not say anything to this guy, mm -hmm. but he folds like a you know, like a deck of cards when 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 uh, Deckard grabs him by <laughs> grabs mm -hmm. him by the scarf or whatever and says, "Hey, you're going to tell me," and he tells him, uh, "Yep." Taffy Lewis on the line down in, uh, it gives him the address even. Yep. <laughs> it's blurts it all out. That's so yep. Abdul so Ben fun, fun character. Yep. So then Deckard goes over to the club. Uh, he's checking on out the, the line. club. Uh, yep. Yeah. With all um, these weird, all this crazy fashion and all these weird, these people are, are, they're definitely city folk, but they're a little bit higher end. 
and yep. he sits down at the bar and says, "Hey, where's the who runs the place or whatever?" And uh, mm-hmm. it's this guy Taffy Lewis again, another who plays Taffy Lewis. He's fantastic. Looking, doesn't want to give it to me. Tell me who it plays it. Not somebody famous exactly. It's just a really really great performance in a short amount of time. High Pike. High Pike. So he, Deckard says. You ever buy snakes from the Egyptian taffy? <laughs> this is just a great yep. detective line out of context. It's hilarious. And he says, all the time, pal. <laughs> yep. Taffy, you can already tell, is not a pushover like Abdul. Yeah. He's gonna he's yeah. gonna he's gonna put up a stink. And all of the usual threatening doesn't really work on him. What is what does Deckard say is as you know, are your your licenses in yeah, order? Are your, up to date? Yeah. And he and then he changed then then uh Taffy changes his his tune and he's like, Hey, he says to the bartender, the man is dry, give him one on the house. And then he turns to him and answers his question and he does it in Spanish. See. Yep. He says, Yeah, you can't threaten me with that. You can't come at me in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh and Taffy has this twinkle in his eye, like, man, if it's snakes you're after, you're about to see the real deal yeah. in a couple of seconds. So he it's it's just really well done. It's a really well done. And sequence. Decker gets to drink. Because then, you know, then Deckard is just like, yep, cool. Yeah, he's, right. he gets completely neutralized by this weird drink with these weird, what look like maggots in the bottom of it. This weird, yeah. crazy place. And uh, as he's thinking about it, he goes to, uh, he goes to call goes Rachel. To She's, yep. Somebody says something that makes him think of her. I don't remember what it is, but it, there is yeah, a connection there. Too. And he goes over to the video phone. Y'all love this. It's the video phone booth with the little screen in it. And yep. Um. So not predicting the future correctly, but still video phone and a phone call that costs a buck twenty-five. Like that, we wouldn't really blink at now either. But in '82, that no. felt for a short like, phone oh call that God, felt like probably, all the money in the world. Probably got probably got a little bit of a chuckle from. I the would audience. think so. But he he calls her up in the middle of the night. Um. While he's at this club and, and invites her down for a drink. What an idiot. <laughs> She's like, I'm not going down She's like, there. That's not my kind yeah. of place. <laughs> yeah. Is it? We'll go yeah. someplace else. <laughs> yeah, we'll go someplace else. Yeah, hey. Um, and she's like, uh, you know, bleh, she hangs up on him and buck 25 for you getting rejected over the video phone, bro. That, that's, <laughs> you better seriously, like, I'm not one yep. for lines and stuff. Come out and say what you mean. I I like Deckard in that way, but you gotta have a little finesse, man. She's a yep. she's a lady, clearly, even if she's an android lady. Um, and you know, you, so you gotta you gotta make a little effort. So he gives up, finishes his drink, and then we hear an announcement in the background. And I know this announcement by heart. It's hard for me not to just like you know, Caddyshack this up, or what's the other movie we quote <laughs> all the time? Uh, um, Monty Python's Holy Grail, Holy Grail <laughs> where you just yeah. sit with your friends and just reenact all hour and a half of these things. Um, but this guy, and I, there's no easier, there's no, it's, it's brevity too. It's so brilliant the way this exposition happens because we don't see any of this. We don't see the stage. We're just sitting with yeah, Decker at the bar just from this perspective. Yep. And you hear the announcer in this weird, affected voice say, um, see... Uh, the magnificent Salome. Watch her take the pleasure from the serpent that once corrupted man. Mm-hmm. And 
And you see Deckard watches this for a couple of seconds. He doesn't last very long. Yeah. Or presume this is some twisted cabaret act where there's some sort of snake human masturbation going on or whatever. I don't, I don't want to think too much about it. But even yeah. Deckard, who's got a pretty strong stomach, does he, it's to his credit that he looks away and doesn't watch this once he realizes what it's going to be. But he does show up in a really fun Harrison Ford performance within a performance, I think. It's a little <laughs> corny, yeah. but it's it shows you that while he can do this and would think to do it, he's not super great at it. Um, but really, it's not even that the, the performance isn't working. It's, it's that, it, or that it's so obvious. It's that he's out of his league with this person who is an infiltrator, who does notice things about people, who does sneak into her, who is snuck into her fair share of back rooms to kill people in her life. Yeah. And this, yeah. so this act, while at first she's intrigued by it, and later she turns against it. Um, he's in the back room reading the trade papers, right? Just like Joel, the union guy yep. reading the variety or whatever. And when Joanna Cassidy's Salome character comes walking by and we recognize the tattoo right away, he says, uh, Miss Salome, Miss Salome, he puts on this <laughs> yeah. guy voice or whatever. Yeah. And he tells her he's there investigating complaints about the management of the place. And he's got this great line. Have you been asked to do anything lewd or unsavory to your person? Uh-huh. And she looks at him and she goes, like what? She's just masturbated <laughs> with a snake on stage in front of like 200 people. Yep. So the idea <laughs> that the management yep. is taking sexual liberties with people is not a scandalous idea to her at all. Or as Diana, who's who, uh, my former and brief editor, said, you know, it's sad even the film's misogyny and the way the film treats women, and it doesn't do it by accident, which is why you can watch it, but the way it handles them and the way they're dealt with in this society, rich or poor, it doesn't even matter which. They're tools and slaves to be used and discarded. Every single one of them. Every woman we meet almost, except the lady with the microscope. Um, You know, she says, even in disguise, they're not exactly living liberated lives. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and it's true. It's true. They're not. What's, she, what's Salome getting out of living this existence? Hiding in plain sight on stage, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Whatever the plan is, right. we're not feeling it. But right. it doesn't matter because we don't get that far into the conversation. She takes a shower. She's got all these weird sequences on her. It's all very cool. The, the, her dressing room is populated with all kinds of weird exotic stuff. Uh, Ford has a really fun interaction with the snake while she's in there. She comes out and she's sort of flirting with him a little, but you just get yeah. the feeling that she's a dangerous lady because she yeah, is we've been told like flirting with him to get him to try to catch him off guard right yeah um and so yeah so, do, then, so uh, if i uh find out about any of this uh who do i who do i call me <laughs> me <he> says. <laughs> uh yeah and it's fun he's a guy he's a guy pretending to be a pervert pretending to be a union representative so there is a mm-hmm. depth to this like undercover work that he's doing in the scene but you just feel like like they said back in hunter you know you just if you looked any more like a cop we'd have to write a movie for you where you played one it's obvious yeah. who he is to everybody uh and it would be even if this was the first time we were meeting him 
Yeah. Uh, so she uh, she gets him. She what does she say? Dry me. She's come out of the shower and she turns her back to him and gives him the towel and he starts drying her back. Yeah. And, and then, then she punches him, breaks his nose, leans down and starts to choke him to death with his tie. When he's totally saved by the bell and a bunch of other performers come storming into this room and she's got to run out. And then we have this chase sequence on the street, right? Ridley Scott, holy yeah. smokes. Uh, this whole sequence is just kind of amazing. I don't quite know where to start. It's The Hare Krishnas are amazing. The All the weird traffic signs that are talking at us are incredible. Yeah, we get... Yeah, again, we get a huge, uh, this is, without being expository, we get an, an incredible glimpse at this world just as on, these on ground level are running. This, this yeah, red ground light level district while, that yeah, we're while in, two basically. people are running through it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just packed, it's jam-packed full of people. He goes it's, in and out of yeah. an elevated bus that's moving slowly through a crowd to to get to her she tries a couple of hiding places a couple of times the whole thing moves really really fast but it is sort of a slow foot chase because it has to be by necessity because it's 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 uh it's just people everywhere you just can't yeah. run full on in this yeah. setting and, and you know and, there, and, and there's a couple points where he's trying to point his gun at her but he can't take the shot because there's just too many people too many people yeah. um there's a and then yeah and then it, we get to a point where he does have an open shot and she's running open and, is a is a to a degree but yes he's yeah. got a place where he's comfortable he's gonna hit her and he does he shoots her three times in the back before she finally goes down he shoots her out on the street she crashes into a like a mannequin display case outside some weird mm -hmm. exotic clothing store Why, for some reason when I for some reason when I uh, when I was watching it I'm like oh yeah that's what Gap is gonna look like in the future yeah. Yeah, everybody's so just, everybody's going to be dressed like her. They're going to have a transparent raincoat on and some weird, mm -hmm. like leather bikini and some strange light up rings around our necks. That's the future, baby. Yeah. Get ready, ladies, guys, guys. Yep. We get to wear trench coats and boots and, and trifocals. Yeah, and weird trifocals. However, um, Ridley really, really wanted Deckard to wear a fedora in this film, and was told that, <laughs> told by the costumer when she showed him the advanced one sheet for Raiders of Lost Ark, which hadn't come out yet. You, you really can't put him in a fedora. This is the movie that he, it's going to, yep. that he just finished making. And he was really sad because <laughs> it is a fedora like character, but I think in the end yep. we're probably better off without that. Um, but, uh, it's, he, but yeah, so he, just let's just say he, fashion in the future is it's, it's just not, not nice to the, to the, to the women. It's always a tougher thing for them. Correct. Um, her getting shot is this incredibly violent, harsh thing. By the time, you know, it's exciting at first. Oh, he's going to get the replicant. But by the time he's done retiring Zora, it, it's just awful. He feels yeah. it. We feel it. it. It's just this horrific thing. She crashes through all this plate glass. She crashes through this display case that has fake snow coming down in it. Um, she kind of lands on the cement, gets up, kind of turns around and crashes through another place of glass before she finally goes down. And it's, it's just, it's just brutal. It, mm -hmm. It's just brutal. It's whatever being she was like, this is awful. And, and it also shows you the fight 
the fight to hang on to life that is inside each and every one of these characters. The yeah. other thing we see that's important little cutaway is we see that Leon has been watching all this. He's seen this the happen. whole time. Yep. Um, and we get so uh, so goes over the but by the time the police arrive at this time uh, and they're looking over it and sure enough we see Gaff and Gaff is like Bryant wants to talk to you. Actually, Gaff comes up to Deckard and knocks him on the hits, back yeah, of his shoulder him, yeah. with the cane and Rick turns around and boom, grabs the cane. He's about to kick his ass and all <laughs> almost yep. doesn't even blink. He just says. Brian, Brian, which is yep. pretty much the only English word we've heard him say twice in the movie to this point. Right, and then he, um, then we cut to them up. getting together at the spinner where Bryant and Emmett Walsh is laboring to get out of this little yep. cockpit of this car. And he says, and, um, "Hey, you got." Uh, he goes, "Good job, man. Way to go. You did it. You're the guy. I knew you the were guy. the guy." Yep. And he's giving him this celebratory thing. While you can tell, Deckard's just. As he says in the voiceover, that's not in the version we just watched. He goes, "It, it, it they called it retirement, but it didn't make me feel any better about shooting a woman in the back." <laughs> You're it, right. You know, this has affected him, which is good. It should. Yeah. And Bryant's callousness and Gaff's little effing with him is not being taken in kind here. Um, yep. And he says, "Well, you got four more, and then you're done." And he's no, 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 three like, more, three. three more. And he goes, "No, there's four. That skin job that you interviewed over at Terrell Corporation, Rachel, turns out she's gone AWOL. Yeah, you're going to yep. have to kill her, too. Uh, didn't even is... know she was a replicant. Something to do with implants, yeah. Tyrell says. Ah, who cares? Just kill her, too, yeah. and then you're done. And and Deckard is just like, that is, that's where we're going to leave it for this episode, because well, he, Deckard... Yeah, Deckard, you can tell, he's the idea of shooting Rachel is the furthest thing from his mind. Yeah. And is, yeah. is the bridge too far, but like a clever character, and he is a clever character in a lot of ways, He he's smart and keeps that to himself, even though we read it all over his face, he doesn't... Yeah. He protests the numbers, but he doesn't protest. He doesn't make a sound about her in this scene. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's and that is a bit of a cliffhanger, I guess. Yeah, that is that's the halfway point of the movie. Uh, is it? That it yeah, we are nice. we are sixty five minutes into the movie um, of this two hour movie. So that's why I think we should leave it right here. Um, and the second uh, part will move a little bit faster, but we do have a lot of ancillary, like non deep dive one scene at a time stuff to talk about when we come to the end. So I think this will yeah. be a pretty good double episode. Yeah. So, all right, everybody, we are halfway through our deep dive of 1982's Blade Runner. Um, this, yeah, it just, just so some cool so screenshots. Of some of the it. scenes we talked mm -hmm. up on the Facebook page, give them a glance. Um, mm -hmm. I wrote a print review for a defunct uh, uh, website project that we were all involved in that, I saved for just the right time, Yay. and it's over there. It's, I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn. It's one of my favorite bits of, of critical reviews that I've ever written because I really am connected with the movie and wanted to. You get inspired to rise to the occasion, right? When you're writing about yep. something great, and I think that. Uh, I want to. I mean, and I want to point out we've made reference to a whole bunch of different versions of Blade Runner, and we're going to continue to make reference to all these different. Ones. We'll break them but down. I, I guess. For you. I guess I want to make sure. I want to make sure the audience knows that we are the the version that Ryan and I saw the other night. That is the basis for what we are discussing right now. Is called Blade Runner: The Final Cut, and it is streaming right now on a major service, Netflix. I want to say. 
Oh, really? Oh, the final cut. So it is. It's just a few clicks away. If somehow you've gotten this far and want to watch it in between shows before we figure out how it all ends. Uh, more watch time. HBO Max and oh, Netflix. Well, so it's available Netflix. on HBO Max and Netflix. And it's right the now. final so, cut that's out there. And the final cut's yeah. the best cut. Well, I'll explain to you all the differences between all the different versions. Uh, yeah. There are some debates about them, but in my opinion, if you're watching this for the first time, the final cut's closest to the, or, to the director's Or frankly, vision. even if you've seen it, yeah, if you've seen it before and you, you're remembering, well, I remember the voiceover, I remember this, well, may, go back, revisit Blade Runner and see this version of Blade Runner. because it's, it's not, yeah. none of them are dramatically different from each other, but mm-hmm. this is the, uh, sans just a couple teeny tiny little things that I don't like about the final cut. Teeny everything everything else about it is the way it, the movie's meant mm-hmm. to be, clearly. So... Uh, all right, so uh, so next week uh, we will um, will I, I guess we'll continue uh, t- continue talking. It would be through, weird to do um, it any other way. I would agree. Yep, we are gonna hit up and we are gonna uh, continue talking. We're gonna finish our deep dive into maybe the greatest sci-fi movie of all time, Blade Runner. Um, that's going to do it for us for this week, everybody. You can reach out to us on the movie show with Joel and Ryan page on Facebook, uh, Instagram, TikTok, and, uh, Twitter ask at ask Joel and Ryan, ask Joel and Ryan at gmail.com. If you want to email us, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can leave us a comment below and we will, uh, we will get back to you on that. Like, and subscribe anywhere you get your podcast delights, um, and like, and subscribe us on YouTube. Um, we'll, we'll get, we, we got good stuff. Hey, this is good visual content too, because we're real, two really good looking guys, I think. Um, all right, everybody take care. And, uh, we will see you next week as we talk more Blade Runner. Thanks everyone. Thank you for listening to the movie show with Joel and Ryan. Remember all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now, here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out.